Tell me, does does your species have kissing? <laughs> Welcome to Ribbon of Memes, episode 124, a podcast where we cower behind the defences um, of films previously described by various uh, much more powerful warriors as masterpieces. And that convoluted opening introduces myself, Nick, as the terrified farmer of the podcast, and I am joined as ever by Roger. Probably the um, lock on a gold warrior who doesn't really do that anymore, but it's going to come back one last time. One last time. We are discussing, um, well, uh, three iterations of the same story. And my opening quote may have been the least relevant <laughs> to any of those <laughs> whatsoever. But it's also one of my favourite from all three films. Um, it is our first Kurosawa film and my second ever watching of a Kurosawa film which would be um, Akira Kurosawa, that is. Um, this will be 1956's Seven Samurai. And then we will go on to discuss in uh, possibly similar or less depth uh, 1960's The Magnificent Seven and 1980's Battle Beyond the Stars, because we couldn't resist having, <laughs> having a cheesy 80s science fiction flick in I, as well. I think it's our first Roger Corman on this show, so, you know. Yeah, oh, it's a good, a good reason to have it in anyway. Um, the Magni uh, not the Magnificent Seven, though I'm not wrong in calling it the Magnificent Seven because Seven Samurai was actually released confusingly as the Magnificent Seven for some years before they actually made the Magnificent Seven. But <laughs> let's call it um, Seven Samurai because that's what it was supposed to be called. Yeah, so this, I mean, the, we can do sort of a plot synopsis for all three <laughs> quite yeah. quickly, um, which is that a... We'll start with the Seven Samurai and then we can vary it up a bit. But the plot itself is is really very simple, which is probably why it's been remade so many times, which is um, a group of bandits are about to raid a village, but they decide actually we'll come back when there's slightly richer pickings, which gives the terrified farmers time to, well, panic. hire to panic. <laughs> <laughs> but the plan they come up with is to hire some samurai. Um, specifically, specifically Ronan, I mean, we're, we're, we're in the Warring States period here. Well, it's um, funny because so I watched a, a, some... A, well, Samurai is both the cast, which is the way they use it in, in at least the translations and what I, what I can make out of, of the soundtrack here, uh, but also it, it is in, suggested that if you're not in the service of a lord, then you're not really a Samurai anymore, you are merely a Ronin. And, well, and, certainly, and those um... are definitely the guys who are being hired here. Sometimes, uh, well, I watched two separate translations, not deliberately, just one, and she was missing <laughs> half the subtitles, so I watched half it and thought, hang on, I've missed half, well, I watched about 20 minutes. But in that version, they called the samurai Ronin in the subtitles, mm. and I noticed that quite often the characters were saying Ronin, but in the version I watched, the final version I watched, even when they said Ronin, the subtitles said samurai. So, uh, there is, there's definitely some subtlety going on there, um, which would probably be more evident to others regardless well, the, they're the, masterless the, the, samurai yeah i mean the the suggestion uh at least as i understand it is that is that if you're in this state you're basically a failure 
Yes. And you, I mean, you, they, may, you may be a very rich and successful failure, but <laughs> you, you are not doing the thing that you were born to do. Well, we have the great quote from the old man in the village where they say, how are we going to find samurai when all we've got to do is, well, we can pay them with his food. And he's like, well, find hungry samurai, <laughs> which is what they do. Basically, they find some uh, hungry samurai. And these samurai are basically archetypes. I mean, they're more than that, but you can very strongly sort of categorize them into archetypes. And we end up with these seven well, seven samurai or six and a half, <laughs> depending on how you want to look at it. Um, so we and, and the the first half of the film is let's go out and recruit these guys. Well, actually, I would say it's a pretty classic three act structure in a way that we have go out and find the samurai. The samurai come back to the village and man the defences and teach the teach the villagers how to fight. And then the final bit is the fight. Mm. So the the early part there this the um. And this is a long film. Is it three and a half hours? Yeah. It may be one of our longest. 207 minutes uh, plus intermission. Uh, For me, at least it it didn't... (laughs) It does have a literal five-minute musical intermission in the middle. Uh, For me, at least it didn't drag, which, you know, good. No, absolutely not, no. I I think our other longest film was um, Apocalypse Now, which did drag in places, I think. Um, But here, I I was well into it now it's hard i don't know when you get older and a bit pretentiouser and you there's a part of you that's like this is a black and white film it's kurosawa it's classic i've got to like this um but i i to be honest if we've seen enough supposedly classic films that i think we wouldn't be drawn in by that particularly if we if it wasn't good and we weren't into it we would mm. say that, but I have to say pretty quickly, and partly because of the, you know, the simplicity of the plot, and partly because of the generosity of the characters, um, and the, I, I mean, the, the camera work and the, the kind of the world building, you're really in there, in this, pretty quickly you understand everyone's starving, everyone's miserable, it's a shitty place, um, and the best you can hope is sort of to make it through to your next, even the samurai are um, living hand to mouth, but they wouldn't dream of... Uh, the other thing that comes across really well, that is not like... It's not the plot point, but it's quite clear. Like, there's a group, there's a pair of um, samurai uh, dickheads, basically, in the in the the town that they go to, that are basically just laughing, like, oh, I'm glad I wasn't born a farmer. Like, there's no suggestion... They would ever be a farmer. They're never mm. going to degrade to that level because they were born at a higher level. And it's just the the caste system is is really yeah. You you, you have brought up with completely different lives and worldviews. Yeah, and you're never going to cross over. There's no American dream of you know aspiration. And that, this and is that, what, what I find interesting. Minor spoiler about the the inevitable romance plot line. You know, one one of the samurai gets involved with with one of the female villagers, and. Yeah, this is very nice. We're probably all going to be dead tomorrow anyway. Let's take what, take what we can. Yeah. But it is clear that she knows right from the start that it is never going to be anything more than that. Um, yes. and he takes a bit longer to learn, but. Well, he's the naive. Uh, I mean, there's some lovely character moments. So that we have, I suppose, as far as our archetypes go, and you may disagree with this, but we have like the, uh, the mentor. Who's you know the main character? Who's I'm afraid I'm not going to attempt to uh, pronounce many of the names because I will butcher them. I'm afraid. Um, uh, 
because they're just seeing them written in you know English uh, alphamini- alphanumerics is not going to help me pronounce them in anything Let's like Cambe. Uh, Cam- um, he he's the guy who saves the cat. Yes, he, I mean, he gets this a great introduction. A cat, but... and, do you know there's a surprising amount about haircuts in this film? I feel, mm. <laughs> I feel everyone, um, every one of the villagers has the same haircut, whereas all the samurai are distinctive in that they have their own uh, individual haircut. And the first thing we see of Kanbe is he is losing his top knot and he's shaving it. And because of that, the the bad so he's he's doing that so he can pose as a monk to get into this uh hostage situation mm. um and basically because he's got a a, a monk's haircut that there's just no suggestion that it, that the bandit inside is going to think he's anything other than a monk so it's it's an interesting yeah a, a bit bit of a sidetrack here but um I've always felt that the all the boys disguised as girls, girls disguised as boys you get in Shakespeare makes a lot more sense when you consider that there were sumptuary laws and you could look at somebody and know what sex they were without even looking at them, just by what they were wearing. Just by looking, yes, exactly. Yes, that does make sense. And I, I feel it's a very similar situation here. And so, but there's something... It's a good bit of character building. I mean, this film is full of little moments, like, but just showing that this is a samurai who is prepared to humble himself in that way. I know he's just getting shaved, but it's quite clear that is a big thing because everyone's like looking at it. Um, but it, he is prepared to humble himself to do that to save this person. Similarly, you know, we have a moment early on, uh, when, um, our, our other archetype, who could either be, I suppose, the kid or the lover, depending on which way you want to look at it, would be, um, uh, so he, that the farmers get their rice stolen that they're going to pay the samurai with, and they're fucked, basically. But, um, the kid just hands, there's a nice little plot point. He's just, he's loaded. He doesn't need to do this. He just gives them more money than they've seen for weeks mm. straight away to get back some more rice. He doesn't want anyone to know about it. And that, you know, it tells you a ton about him and his character as well. Um, I, it's, and then we have uh, some of the others are a bit harder to characterize, but we certainly have the master, you know, the one who's just interested in his craft. He gets a great introductory scene of, um, you know, I can win. I'm not going to because I'll kill you, but you know, I've won. And then he's just pushed to the point of, all right, okay, I'll kill you. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, he takes no pride in it or pleasure, but he just, he, he knows he's going to win. And so he's a great character. Um, uh, then we have the, the, the characters are a bit less hard to characterize, sort of the, the old colleague, um, and the, the clown, I suppose he's supposed to be one that cheers everyone up, except the clown is taken <laughs> much more, um, uh, much more properly by, uh, I suppose the other archetype of the fool, which, who of course is the, the standout character of the film, which would be Kichiku. Uh, see this, uh, thank you. Um, but played by the, uh, the standout actor of the film, who would be, um, Toshiro Mifun, who, who really did well out of it. In fact, the only other, um, uh, the only other film of Kurosawa's I've seen is Throne of Blood, which has him, as the Macbeth character, um, but he's he's much better here. So he, he turns up as this Rel- dr- relatively early in his career too. I mean, his, his first appearance was in forty seven. So I think he's one of those actors that basically was tied up with Kurosawa. So even when they parted ways, he was always thought of as part and parcel of Kurosawa. But he is. Yeah. Um, so he gets. 
all, all he, of the he's other. He's also in Rashomon, um, Throne of Blood, as you say, Hidden Fortress, Ijimbo. Yeah, he, he was real. Uh, he was he was sort of like James Stewart to um, Hitchcock in a way. But he gets up. I gather all the other six were based on historical characters, and his. Uh, yeah, all these legendary characters. I mean, as, as we were talking about with Robin Hood recently, um, you, you get this idea of well, it, it, everybody knows it, and th- therefore you can base a thing on it. It doesn't really matter whether it's true or not. <laughs> yeah, but he's the one who, who gets to play the. Uh, I mean, he's the one who's allowed to improvise more, and so he gets some of it's just prat falling, and it's not particularly highbrow humour, but it's just it just works really. That he, he does endear himself to you. I mean, he's a dickhead and all the others think he's a dick, but he just he wins you over hmm. um yeah it's, it, it's I, a thing i notice whenever i watch uh japanese or chinese films uh a they're prepared to spread over genre quite a lot more than western films tend to be yes uh but also b that that spread very often includes basic physical comedy pratfalls stuff like yes. that which it... i'm not terribly interested in but yeah fair enough but he, I mean, he is a great physical actor. In fact, they, they a lot of them are here, but he, he really does. Um, it's all down in the dirt and grimy, and they're all, you know, a lot of it is the dress. But the thing that really makes it shine for me, um, you know, no, no spoiler, this is a masterpiece for me, but the thing that makes it shine are these little character moments that make you care about the character. Like, there's that incredible scene. Um, they've just... Um, uh, they've arrived at the farm and, um, uh, 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 Kiku, how do you pronounce it? Um, but Toshiro Buffoon's character has found some samurai armor and he's got no worries about putting it on and bringing it in. And they are just, the, the rest of them are just stony faced shocked. How could you be doing this? These are fallen samurai. Uh, and Prob- then he probably t- murdered by these villagers. Yeah. And, th- but then he turns it round and it's quite clear, you know, they figure out, um, that he's a farmer. Yeah, they always knew he was a wannabe samurai because he's got this scroll thing. That's me on the bottom there and didn't realise he's, he's supposed to be 13 years old. Um, which is another lovely touch. Uh, and you're never given any more backstory than that other than he's the son of a farmer. Actually, you do find out a bit more, but it's all done in pieces. But then he just turns it round on them and shames them like, well, okay, if farmers are scum, uh, and live like this, it's because you made them. It's because it's people like you and why we have to live like this. And it's just, it's a, just a great scene. I just love it. And it, somehow he gets across his contempt for the farmers and the samurai and himself <laughs> all yeah. kind of together. It's just, it's lovely. It's really good stuff. The, this is the thing that uh, actually came up during production. The original plan was uh, basically a day in the life of a samurai. Mm. Uh, he, he found a story of roughly this plot. Um, according to Mifune, at least, uh, the film was originally going to be Six Samurai. He was going to be the steady-faced, utter professional guy. But oh, yes. A- as they were working on the script, they realised that you know, having, having six essentially steady-faced professional guys was kind of boring. They needed a bit, a bit, a bit more um, variation in the characters. And uh, yeah. that, that's when Kikuchio turned up as a, as a concept. Well, it's a great... I mean, it's he's not a... With all these, I mean, they're not, they're not deep characters particularly, but they're given moments of depth and humanity. Um, and it's all just grounded in Japanese culture, which I am not at all, mm. but it just, you understand just because of the way it's filmed and the way it's done, the importance of station and why it's such a transgression that, um, you know, the kid and the farmer 
get together and why the father why the father's so ashamed why you know the source of shame that the the farmer who hires them all that his wife has been taken by the bandits and basically is in some kind of opium haze as some kind of sex slave presumably mm. and the shame of that he can't even it's really well um but but the same for her when 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 she, when they uh, attack the bandits stronghold and she she realizes that, that what yeah she she is sober enough to to realize yes. that yes they, they are rescuing people she goes back in to burn with them because because she she's not going to have a life after that exactly. yeah yeah everybody's going to look at her and say oh well yeah you you were with the bandits for 3 years or whatever it was you're you're tainted you're yeah, yeah. it's just it's really well but it also what it, it Unlike um, Lost in Translation, where these things... I mean, obviously, because this is <laughs> written by Japanese, and it's a Japanese production. But in Lost in Translation, these things were presented as alien and slightly inhuman and un ununderstandable. Here, it really finds the humanity in all that. So you still understand... You know, these are people. They're just in an entirely different culture. Mm. But they're still people. They still have all the same thoughts and desires. And it's, you know, Japan's legendarily got this kind of collectivists for the good of all approach to things um, as opposed to the very western individualist i think most studies show that actually nowadays at least um that's not true it's 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 more of a sort of a cultural hangover um but you must make uh, sacrifices for the good of rich people's yacht money <laughs> exactly um but here it does come across and and i think it'd be interesting to contrast it'll be interesting to contrast the magnificent seven because here um you know some plot points that don't develop here that do otherwise is you know there's uh, there's almost a rhythm I, I don't want to cross over too much but at this point the samurai however tough it gets they never question what the you know they've got a job to do they're going to do it they're samurai they're never going to run off and, you know, they never question that now they're here, this is it. This job is now more important than my life. All of them will sort of put it on the line. For well, whereas the bandits are effectively faceless. Um, hmm. I mean, yes, that's an, another they, they, difference. They, there's a suggestion that, you know, they, they, they could make the village so hard to attack that the bandits will just go somewhere else. But that still leaves you with a bandit problem next year. Yes, yeah. So they they really want to, um, but yeah, they they, they give them to even Kikuchi. Uh, oh dear me, uh, Toshiro Mifune's character. Um, even he, you know he's there's no suggestion he's not going to do it. Um, and I, you know, but there's just some great. I don't know. I could just talk about the film. There's some great moments where our, our master he's just like, oh, they've got guns, right? I'll go and get one. They don't make much of it, and then just the next scene, he just comes back, hands him the gun, killed two. Sits down, goes to sleep. I just, I just I, maybe that is some macho bullshit. I don't know. I just love he, it. It's he does just... have a bit of that look that I, I associate with uh, Robert Davy. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to get on with the thing I do. If you yes. don't like the thing I do, you probably shouldn't be watching me do it. <laughs> exactly, yes. And then we have um, Toshiro Mifune's character tries to do the same thing because he sees like how great but uh, you know his way of doing it although he manages it and we see how he does it um leads to catastrophe because he sort of lets the bandits in and loses uh a, a, a farmer friend he's, he's got the most expressive face that farmer is incredible um <laughs> but he loses him i just uh and the i don't know i i'm glossing over it now because i'm just bouncing between points i enjoyed but 
uh, have you uh, things to add while I'm in between my no, bouncing around? I, I, I love it. I mean, I suspect you you will feel the same way uh, here that you, you you did about Redcliffe, and I, I did too. Which was this is clearly from the days before anybody was claiming that no animals were harmed. I did. I deliberate. I'm afraid I deliberately didn't look into it. Whenever I see a horse fall over on screen, uh, I wince because you know that and we talked about it at Red in Redcliffe, but. You can either spend years and years and years training a horse to do that and have one of the two horses in the country that can do that, or you can fucking knock a horse over and then um, sometimes... And, and, and say you did those other things. Yes, yeah. So uh, I'm going to put that aside. I, I deliberately didn't look into the animal welfare aspects of this. Uh, um, yeah, well, I mean, non-existent, really. Um, yeah. Two, two um, visual moments that particularly struck me. Um, the silhouettes of the bandits at the beginning as, as they're deciding uh, where, when to attack. Uh, yes. But also um, uh, during one of the actions, there's an outlying mill which has to be abandoned because it can't be within put within the defensive lines, and that just that scene of the burning mill wheel, yeah, yes, utterly splendid. Well, you know the end scene where we have these four graves with their katanas stuck out of them as well. The way he uses fire, um, uh, just in general, like there's a scene when um, I don't know, it's just close up of the fire, and then it starts raining uh, to sort of signal the final battle. I don't know. It's just visually, it's incredible. I mm. think it's uh, it's a lovely film. Uh, yes, animal welfare issues aside, which I uh, you're quite right. Um, uh, it, it's great. I mean, the ending. It, it's also interesting. None of the none of the samurai have aside from Toshiro Mifune's character. Um, uh, none of the samurai have particularly noble ends or kind of heroic, you go, I'll stop them. Uh, three of them just get shot. Um, just in the middle of another battle, they just fall. They're just dead. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, of... that's the key point, the closing line. Um, you know, yes, you've saved the village. The village is still here. The farmers can go on. Um, the samurai are going to blow away on the wind. Or Ronin, perhaps we should say, are going to blow away on the wind. Because that's that's the thing they do. They, they, their job is to fight until something kills them. Yeah, and um, and we have this night from the uh, um, from the mentor character. You know, he has this. He's trying to explain to the kids. The kids like, wow, isn't it great? Basically, you're a samurai. It's amazing. And he's like, well, it's never got me anything. Here I am. I'm very good at what I do, and I've got nothing to show for it and no one loves me and no one cares um and it, not he doesn't do that in a sort of self-pitying way it's just like this is the way it is so this is the way this is the way um, it's going to be for you too yeah so if you want that that's how it'll be yeah it's good so this was a very successful film by many standards i think and certainly did well internationally uh it was released as the magnificent seven in america um, it outgrossed they... Godzilla in, in, in 1954. Incredibly, yeah. Godzilla's, um, <laughs> we should talk about Godzilla sometime. It's not the film everyone thinks it is. But, mm. um, then it got remade as a Western. And, but this I... is an official authorised remake with credit and everything. Yes, yeah, proper. Uh, so it is literally a remake, um, with kind of a, uh, I don't know what you call it, a super band of, um, I don't know how many were famous at the time, but certainly a number of them were, but we have 
uh, this time as R7. And the, the plot is the same. It's a Mexican village this time, and it's bandits this time, and it's cowboys, not samurai. Uh, otherwise, it's the same idea. Um, and the seven gunslingers, um, I mean, we've got Charles Bronson, Robert... Charles Bronson, Bronson, when he still looked like Charles Bronson rather than a parody of himself. <laughs> yes, exactly. This is long before the Death Wish films. I mean, again, I, 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 I'm I, not enough of a film historian to know whose career was made by this and who wasn't. Yul uh, Brynner. Um, Always got time for Yul Brynner. Uh, he's great in this. I think it's my favourite role I've seen him in. Um, uh, yeah, we have Robert Vaughan, um, about whom more later. Steve McQueen, who we've talked about. I've talked about not entirely gelling with Steve McQueen and not really like I have to say this younger more kind of laconic version of him when he's not trying to be a smarmy bastard like he is in um the Thomas Crown affair <laughs> I liked him more here yeah. I, I did kind of I gel with him more here I must say uh it's uh so it's, it's a very similar plot and maybe it's more interesting to talk about the differences than the similarities one of them straight away to me is these guys are actually getting paid. Not much, but I don't know if that's a particularly American. There's, they are getting paid money to do this. Um, and it, it, uh, I, I think that's interesting. You know, the samurai in Seven Samurai, there's no suggestion they'll get anything other than they'll get three meals a day and a roof over their heads, probably, if mm. they're good. Whereas here, we, they do, they do have to be persuaded to get paid. And at least one of the characters, uh, although he kind of knows it's bullshit, he's convinced himself there's going to be riches beyond his wildest dreams in this shitty job in this uh, dead <laughs> dead end backwater that he's found himself in. Yeah, so I mean, that, that's one of, one of the uh, ad- added elements of characterization. But yeah, he, he he's he's an old friend of the boss, but yes. he's convinced that oh, I know, I know the boss. He he would never do this just <laughs> just for, just for this trivial amount of money. There's got to be some deal in it somewhere. Now, whether he really believes that or not, he sort of does, I think, but uh, it's becoming clear to him that no, <laughs> no, that's bullshit. Um, the other interesting thing they do with the Magnificent Seven, and I don't know quite why they do, they do away with um, the, cl- the 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 fool character. He just isn't well, there. So no, I mean, he's amalgamated of... into some other characters, but he's just not. Well, no, Chico is basically there. I mean, he he's the guy who's refused permission to join the band. And and, yeah. and follows them and, and you know catches the fish and all, all that stuff. Well, he does. he gets some of the plot points, but he also gets the plot points from the lover. You know, he's mm. the kid and the lover. Um, but he doesn't. He's not the same kind of fool. Do you know what I mean? He's not the kind of character mm. that they all bounce off. Yes, he's the one that staggers in drunk, but in that. You know, that one is deadly serious, you know, because he could kill someone at any time. Whereas when Tashiro Mifun's character comes in drunk, they're just laughing at him, basically. There's never any threat from him. Uh, so I felt it was taken a bit more seriously. Now, there's a few one-liners, and they're all good. Steve McQueen gets a few of them, and Charles Bronson gets a few of them. But they, they don't have this whole fool character, and I was slightly surprised about that. But I agree, we still get that scene where they work out that the kid was brought up in a farm but you know it doesn't have the same resonance when you're outside of that cast structure i think it doesn't quite hit home in the yeah. same way I mean, any any of them could have been brought up on the farm yeah and it wouldn't matter they could still end up as gunslingers not, not as if you know you emerge from the mouth of your mommy's pistol or whatever whatever <laughs> gunslingers do 
Uh, ooh, that's a disturbing image. Um, the other interesting thing we have is uh, the antagonist is really heavily characterised here. Yeah, they have faces now. Yeah, we have Eli Wallet. Um, again, another uh, face we love to see. Yes, uh, as the uh, as the bandit who's got this, he does that kind of faux charm with the undercurrent of threatening. I'm going to kill everyone here, um, which is it's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting way of doing it. I'm not entirely sure it completely works because the problem is, to some extent, the more you sympathise with the baddie a bit, and here you find out they're, you know, they're going to starve to death if he doesn't take this village, basically. Mm. Uh, I mean, he's a, he doesn't, he's, he's still a pretty one note baddie, um, but he. I, I don't think that we're after sympathy here, but, but he, he, it makes him a little bit more than the one dimensional, well, you know, I'm, I'm of there, I've got guns that are going to come and get you. Yes. Well, in, in Seven Samurai, the bandits are sort of a force of nature, mm. like there's a hurricane coming or, you know, it, there's no defending against it or there's no changing it. You just got to defend against it. Here, there's some element of reasoning with him, um, and. Or at least it appears to be. Um, which, which, I mean, that, that, that's the thing, he's deceptive in itself, that he, he seems to be a reasonable guy you can talk to. Yes. Until the instant you, you suggest that he might not get everything he wants. And then he's going to shoot one of you, yes. Yeah. Except that, you know, at the, at the end of Magnificent Seven, he captures them all, takes all the guns away, doesn't kill, he could have quite easily killed them all. Um, and he says that, you know, I could kill you all, you'll agree. Yeah. I'm not going to do that, I'm going to let you go. Seriously regrets that decision because then they're all but hurt. Um, and uh, it feels to me that strikes more to the individual. The other plot point that hits here is at some point they're all like, fuck this. The odds are too bad. We're going to go. And that in Seven Samurai, that just doesn't happen. No. Not, not one of them has. The villagers do, but the samurai never question. Once they've taken this contract, that's it. That's their job. It's their life. It's more than their life. The job is more important than their life now. Um, whereas here, these, this, this is where it's interesting. You know, this is much more of a Western individualist kind of, well, what we stand to gain here is now a lot less than what we stand to lose. Let's not do it anymore. Mm. And n- n- none of them is really coming in here based on their reputation. I mean, presumably their reputation would take a hit. He was the guy who abandoned that job in wherever. Yes. Um, but on the other hand, it was, it would be, he was the guy who abandoned that job in wherever in, in hopeless odds. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And yes, they said the samurai are not held in the same, in the original seven samurai, however impoverished, however far they've fallen, they're still samurai. Whereas these guys are just gunslingers and they doesn't have the same cultural kind hmm. of. There, there, there isn't a suggestion of social superiority. I mean, yeah, they get respect from the villagers. And they, yes. they get a certain amount of fear from the bandits, but it's, it's on the basis of their physical skills rather than their social position. And again, you know, the baddies kind of, uh, you know, why don't you join me? There's never any suggestion of that in Seven Samurai. Probably, you know, if you try and suggest to a samurai, you know, I'll give you more money, come over to my side. You know, that's not going to go <laughs> well for anyone. Um, so it, it's interesting that it does have this one. I mean, it tries to hit a lot of the same notes, and I think in many ways successful. You know, it does talk about... Um, there's the nice scene with Charles Bronson, you know, the kids say, my dad's a coward. And he's like, I'm the coward. They've got responsibility. It may be a bit heavy handed and a bit on the nose, but it is, it's a nice, it sort of hits on Western tropes in a way, you know, they, 
they've got their family and their responsibility and that's more important and that felt like a very western spin on the the kind of seven samurai thing mm. and, I and i like the way they managed to keep some some of the same um actual scenes like the yes well i mean say the the, the cat save here is beautiful uh, yeah, oh, that uh, is lovely. Yeah, so the cat save, the original, um, we have him going into this hostage situation, and here the cat save is. Our, our hero has just wandered into town, and there, there, there is a, a contention over, um, the, with the local undertaker. Basically, uh, some, somebody else says, well, I'm, you know, just walking down the road, this guy dropped dead in front of me, so I'm paying for his funeral, because I'm, because I have some money and I'm, sort of thing I do Undertaker says yep yeah, can't funeral him though because uh, townsfolk don't want a black folk don't want a black man in the cemetery yes and so that um, yeah that offends our hero's sensibilities and Toby's like well if that's the only thing I'll drive the hearse it's fine and Steve McQueen hops up next yeah it's a really nice shorthand Again, these are all archetypes. They're all fairly one-note characters. I mean, I don't think we actually see another black guy in the film. So. <laughs> oh, no, no. Heaven forbid. But, you know, a lot of the main characters are Mexican or Mexican origin. So, you know, there are, there is, yeah. there is some diverse representation that got maybe, th- made me think about the female representation in the film, which, uh, much like Seven Samurai is near zero. Um, mm-hmm. here though, the Mexican villager who falls for our lover archetype, she, I mean, she literally throws herself at him. It's, it's very, I mean, she is, he's trying to say stuff. He's basically trying to bat her off while she's trying to come along and kiss him. She has no motivation other than, I want a bit of this guy. And I, I, I felt that was a bit sad. She's just throwing Let's face herself it, they are, at they are probably the most exciting thing that's happened in this town in the last three generations. That's true. That's all right. I'll, I'll give it, but it's very different interpretation to the kind of the coy, uh, dance that they do in Seven Samurai. She's just like, come on, then, and he's like, no, no, I'm trying to, I'm trying to do my emotional speech. Hang on. Also, I, I suspect we have, have a, a wedge for your animal handling corner here. You, you should probably not approach an unknown animal this way, even if it really appears docile. You probably shouldn't play <laughs> bullfights with it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Though there is, I mean, there's some great horse stunts here. Now, I, again, I nearly looked into the animal welfare aspects of this because then the the Motion Picture Association was starting to move to, but I think it was very early, so I don't. Yeah, I was the, the Universal Declaration actually only came in after Ishtar. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they, they were, there was a horrible incident where a horse fell off a cliff, basically. Um, uh, but I think that was after this, during the film Move of Western. Uh, uh, but I was quite impressed with like, I'm Steve McQueen, you know, literally jumping on a horse from standing, which is not that easy to do. I've tried and <laughs> I, I've never been able to. Um, it's, uh, yeah. So there's some lovely action here. Um, we have Robert Vaughan. I, Robert Vaughan was an interesting character because he, he sort of at first glance he seems to be seems to be the master archetype, but actually that goes to uh, the chap we haven't mentioned, James Coburn, mm. who's like the master, who again gets the exact scene of I'm an expert at this, I know what I'm doing, I'm not going to kill you because I don't have to. Oh, you've pushed me, all right, I'm going to kill you. There we go. Um, he gets the exact scene of uh, he throws a knife into the heart of a, mm. uh, a silly cowboy who keeps poking him, but it's interesting his. His character is greatly diminished from the master archetype in the Seven Samurai, who is basically just this paragon of everything a samurai should be. But here, he doesn't really get very much to do. Hmm. I think part of the problem is you've got seven protagonists. You start giving them individual skills. They, they, um, you, know, you start running out of screen time. 
Yes, and this is much. Is this still a over two hour film, but actually much much shorter screen time than Seven Samurai? Um, I managed to do quite a lot with it. I'll be, I I like it a lot. Sorry, I was talking about Robert Vaughan's character, but it's, it's not clear to me. Uh, some of the action is a bit. I think the action sequences. Some of them good as they are. I found the action a little more confusing. Uh, to be fair, Seven Samurai, it's one of those where you almost want to pause the film and have a map of the village and like, <laughs> this is where these people are so I can just follow what's happening. Yeah. Instead, you just have to trust that they know what they're doing. Um, but here I found it even more confusing a bit in that Robert Vaughan, I'm not sure. Is he supposed to be like a coward in some of the early fights or is it like just yeah, weird yeah. editing? I mean... He, there, there is a scene where he, where he explains it, and ba- basically his nerve has gone. He, he's he's got so much post traumatic stress that he's just hiding that, around he, the corner. He can do the thing in the moment, but he just can't rely on himself to yes. be able to do the thing. Yeah, you know, some, somebody shoots him, he'll shoot back, but he but he can't go out and do it. And as we see, we, he has the horrible nightmares and all the rest of it. But then he gets his nice moment of just like kicking his way into and defusing a hostage situation in, uh, uh, in very American style. Um, it's, it's a good, I like it. Um, I like it. I love Yul Brynner. I love a lot of the characters in it. Um, always got time for Steve McQueen. Uh, well, I liked him a lot more here than I, uh, than I did in other films. Um, a guy um, you've almost certainly never heard of, uh, elsewhere. so he he had a bit of a career in his day with uh, Horse Buchholz. Uh, he, this, this, he's in the credits as introducing, though he'd already been, he'd already done quite a few things. I mean, he was basically the heartthrob. Uh, oh yeah, I I knew I'd seen him elsewhere, so uh, but I can't see, think about 20, what twenty six when this is being made. Um, probably, yeah. I mean, he he was he was in Tiger Boy with Hayley Mills in '59, and she said she had a crush on him and got really really annoyed when he when he when they broke for filming and had an engagement party. <laughs> um, okay, he he did quite a lot in German language. He 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 was he he had you know he did did some Euro spy stuff like that. He, he was never quite the big name in the US that obviously everybody wanted to be. But, but yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think career. he's really. He get in a way he gets the most interesting character, being as he is uh, an amalgam of the lover and the fool. Mm. Um, he gets some of the most interesting. He's never quite as charming as um, Tashiro Mifune's character is, but he, he does get some emotional depth and interest. Um, I, I do like him. I liked him here anyway. And uh, yeah, so key difference from Seven Samurai, of course, is, is that uh, he can, at the end, say, yeah, I'm just going to stay here and be a farmer. Yeah, that's, that's another thing. He gets to, like, because all the weight of tradition is that, that, that people will accept him as going back to the farming ways, whereas in Seven Samurai, you just know that's just that they're always going to be a part. You know, there's that, it's kind of a sad ending, Seven Samurai, you know, to just uh, sh- the equivalent couple She's like, she know that's done. Um, you know, we can't. That can never happen. It's mm. incredible that it happened. What? That, that's depressing, but very good. Um, so magnificent seven. Uh, I guess we can wrap them all up at the end. But that uh, that's the sort of key differences that that struck me. Really, it's it's the same story, but well, I I, I think as as you're saying, the the whole betrayal angle. Um... Bad, bad guys have managed to ambush and capture our heroes and then say, right, well, I just want you to walk away now. Yes. If you won't join me. 
because to come back would be certain death, um, and they do it anyway. Also, you've already got your money. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so it's, but in a way, that scene would be unnecessary in Seven Samurai because they'd just be like, they would never have accepted that in the first place. So I suppose it just wouldn't have worked. And, but and, it, but it, just it a note int- on how much this has penetrated popular culture, even though I'd never seen a film, I instantly recognised the main theme. Oh, yes, absolutely, yeah. I, in fact, my immediate reaction was, oh, this is what it's from. Yeah, so <laughs> that's true. But similarly, um, that picture of um, Tashiro Mifune uh, with the, um, uh, in the samurai armour um, is something that is an image to me that is sort of uh, um, uh, screaming and holding a sword. It's, it's kind of smushed into my brain, um, even though I'd never seen the film before. But it is time to move on to the 80s Roger Corman spectacular Battle Beyond the Stars, mainly starring um, Sybil Danning's tits, as far as, <laughs> as, far as oh, I you know, you know, she's like co-stars as well. Uh, <laughs> um, this is now. This is a difficult one for me. This is a film that I saw. Um, I must have been uh, eight or nine when I first saw it. Maybe nine, but it was one of those films that we taped from the TV, and it was one of those. Back in those days, you had a certain stock of films that you take for the TV. And if it was a rainy day, you watched one of those films. And consequently, Battle Beyond the Stars and Return of the Jedi minus the last 20 minutes, which which (laughs) don't, that's too traumatic for me to think about. I just know Battle Beyond the Stars like the back of my hand. Um, but I haven't watched it probably for 30 years. Um, so this was an interesting watch for me. Um, uh, just, just a reference, I, I hadn't seen any of these three before. This is a bit, uh, Battle Beyond the Stars is a bit like watching Blackadder for me now, in that I, I watched it so <laughs> young, I didn't get any of the kind of references or the fact that the spaceship's got a giant pair of bazookas <laughs> or anything like that. I, I, I just... def- definitely found myself thinking, yeah, the, the guy who designed this ship spent some long, lonely voyages fondling <laughs> the model. <laughs> Well, uh, the guy who designed the ship turns out to be James Cameron. Um, I yeah, think. he he was hired as a model builder, and then then the art director walked, and uh, Gail Ann Hurd, who was also already working on the show, said, "I I, I know this guy. He he can do some stuff." And and he got promoted. Effectively, this was his big break. They've both gone on to a, a larger thing. Roger well, Corman, also, basically. Uh, she, she said that uh, another guy you may have heard of who, who uh, she, she met on the set of this film was Bill Paxton, who was hired as a carpenter. Yes, he was a carpenter, yes, then. And, and, the one and, who kept and them they'd going. be working till three in the morning and he'd be the one keeping the spirits up with jokes and stuff. Oh, so. that makes me happy. We we like a bit of Bill Paxton Absolutely. in any situation um, on this podcast. So this is, again, the same film. We have the... Uh, this is not a officially licensed sequel, but there are a lot of nods. Like the whole planet is called the Akira. The, Akira, uh, the planet is called Akira um, because of Akira Kurosawa. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the... this is Roger Corman. Catch <laughs> Roger Corman playing for a license if he didn't have to. <laughs> um, yes, there's a there's a reason why he did a lot of Edgar Allan Poe stuff. <laughs> I guess. Um, the, this for him was a pretty high budget film. It was like two million. Um, for mm. most other people at the time, it was it was not high budget. But and, but and most of that obviously in one of the one of the um, legion of films that came out to say, well, okay, Star Wars has been a success. Science fiction is cool now. Let's make science yes. fiction. And I uh, mean, see also Battlestar Galactica. 
Yes, well, unfortunately, that leads to a lot of tedious kind of this ship is slowly docking with this thing um, and there is some operatic music in the background because 2001 has far more influence than it deserves to have. <laughs> but I, I'm not going to... You know, we talked about soundtracks before. This soundtrack, I... To me, it just makes my heart sing. I know it's cliche and crap and 80s nonsense and it's all the same. But, oh, my God, I still have Battle Beyond the Stars on my iPod selection now. And I'm not ashamed to say it, even though I don't have an iPod anymore because I'm not uh, that old. Well, the great thing is this this is when James Horner was both, A, affordable, because this is only <laughs> his third film score and his other two had also been for Roger Corman, um, but also, B, with some ideas left. Because he, he, that, yeah, there are there are elements in here that he would use a lot later. In, oh, look, quite right in, too. In scores for which he got paid a lot more. Quite right too, because it's lovely. I will not hear a word said about the score. It is eighties. You know, I, I hear a operatic. James Horner score now, and I think, yeah, that sounds like all the others. This this is where <laughs> this is what this is a lot of what it sounds like. I I can't be objective about this film, but uh, it is the same idea, except we've got John Boy from the Waltons this time as uh, the... Well, he's got an interest. He's both the farmer who recruits all the people and he's the the kind of the hero and the kid and the lover all together. So he gets a lot of kind of uh, roles here. He is... I mean, he's basically a sub... Sub Mark Hamill, <laughs> Luke Skywalker stand in. Uh, but I actually, do you know what? He does it. I was watching it, um, just this morning. He's really into it. He's really giving it his heart. And it, <laughs> he's like, when he's fighting these in a way that perhaps you could accuse George Peppard of maybe not being quite, quite so into it. Um, but he's really, you know, Nell, move me up this way. I want to go three degrees. He's re- oh, I, I felt like, oh, I, 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 I definitely felt a touch of the Wesleys, but. No, maybe that's me. <laughs> yes, or uh, I can. Uh, the reason I'm defending him to the hill to that way is because I can very much see the other side. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I ever saw the Waltons, so I, I hadn't seen him before. Uh, I was quite surprised to discover that uh, yeah, he was he was pushing thirty when when this was filmed. Oh, really? Uh, I, oh, well, I'd he... assumed he was he was some, somebody's kid who wandered onto the set, but yeah, he's not got quite. He's not quite got Mark Hamill's. Um, Charm. I I don't know, but he's certainly got enthusiasm, and that counts for a lot. <laughs> that counts for a lot. Yeah, we have. He, he a... could be a whole lot worse. And he could. Yes. To, to be fair, I went into this thinking, hang on a minute. Given the given the date and the subject matter, how does this not have Caroline Munro in it? <laughs> um, yes, a good point. But I mean, somehow... did, she, did she have a hangover the day of the casting call or something? <laughs> um, but it it does have um, Sybil Danning and her. Um, that is next. So Sybil Downing is a space. I don't think they even call her a space Valkyrie. My goodness, those that was some very careful design to prevent nipple showing with those with the costume she wears. <laughs> that you can see. Uh, not that I was looking. <laughs> her outfits are um, provocative, and she does. I mean, what was the line you texted me? Um, <laughs> you, you've never seen a Valkyrie go down. <laughs> and my, my my feeling was yes, given given the hints you just just um, failed to notice, you probably never will. Unlike your girlfriend, <laughs> uh, oh yes, who gets the immortal line? Um, Does your species have kissing? Which again, I just that is somehow I don't know. For me, somehow it works. I mean, some of the lines are terrible, but 
we she again yes she's i mean we, we, we've got a touch of the forbidden planets here uh she she's been brought brought up uh, on this space station with elderly father who is increasingly um a, a product of his life support machinery it's and a whole bunch of robots at this point very expensively produced robots that basically just got slightly shiny makeup but otherwise are people which i quite they're very good they're great physical actors though i mean it worked mm. for me someone who put some servo noises over them when they moved Oh, the special effects. Uh, again, James Cameron became basically the special effects guy for this. They're pretty good. We joked about the design of the ships because it's hard not to be. I mean, it's even got nipples, for God's sake. At least it didn't fire out of the nipples. <laughs> but you can <laughs> I, well, see. I kind of was waiting for that, I admit. <laughs> you can see the design is based on a, a, a woman's body, which I don't know if that's disturbing or not. It is kind of disturbing. But it. Uh, at least they didn't eject the escape pod out of the, out of the groin. That would have been really disturbing. Um, but um, some of the other ships... Well, the other ships are all interesting. They're very distinctive. We have George Peppard um, as a cowboy. Um, space ca- His name, literal name is Space Cowboy, in case you're confused as to what archetype he's conforming to. Yeah, and an interesting position in the, in the career for him. I, I, I've seen him as in uh, Operation Crossbow, 15, yeah. yes, <coughs> 1965. It's a wartime drama thing. Oh, it, I know it, him from Breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, but, but this specifically is just before he got cast in the A-team. Okay. So as far as he is concerned here, you know, I mean, he's he's still a name, but he's not a big name. He's, he's, he's coming it's, to the end of things. It's hard for me to tell whether he's kind of acting a, a drunk or he's actually a bit drunk. <laughs> <It's actually laughs> um, but either way, he does exactly what he needs to. You know, he, he's uh, he's this kind of laconic cowboy character. I mean, that some of these names are great. Like we, <laughs> the guy, the the lizard guy who's sort of crocodilian. He's literally called Cayman. I mean, <laughs> it's. Um, uh, and also the baddie, Sador. Come on, that's a pretty good name. Mm-hmm. Sador of the, the Malmore. The excellent John Saxon. It's fair. I mean, everyone is doing, they're, they're all absolutely one note, I think. They have, none of them really have the emotional depth. Well, perhaps I'm being a bit unfair there. We have the return of, um, uh, uh, uh John, uh, uh um, Robert Vaughan. Robert Vaughan, thank you. Frankly, a similar character. Very similar character. His he has problem, a, he's, problem now is not that he's lost his nerve, but uh, the the entire civilized universe has a bounty on him. Yes, exactly. So it's, it's basically that character aged up a bit, having regained his nerve, but uh, <laughs> but nowhere to go. That's a weird scene as well when he's in that kind of strange cobwebby Vegas where they resurrect. <laughs> um, I'm not sure quite what's going on there, but it, it felt yeah, quite like... Um, with, with, with all the plutonium you say you've gathered, do you, do you find yourself suffering from hair loss and frequent vomiting? <laughs> yeah, no wonder everyone looks like a bomb city. You've got a pile of plutonium <laughs> in the corner. It felt like that was supposed to be this kind of space Moss Eisley thing, but the, the budget stretched to a dark room. Well, I think it's a combination of making making the most of the budget, but also to some extent a deliberate thing. Um, there's this sensation that that you know, there was the golden age of the the, the uh, corsairs and so on. Um, yes, bl- blind father figure uh, on the planet is, is was clearly one of them. That's where the ship comes from. Yes, but it's but that's all gone now, and you know there are, there are a few of them left, like Robert Vaughan Gelt. Um, but basically, that age is over now. It fit, I mean, it's interesting. It's set in a similar sort of, it feels like a similar sort of period in galactic history to the Wild West, 
and to you know the the certainly nobody ever talks about a central century. authority they could they could uh, appeal to. Yeah, it feels like maybe there was, and its social order has collapsed, and there's been a war now. Though why you would prance about on a planet with no defences and a weather station, then I don't know. But there we go. That's, <laughs> and why you send your that poor blind corsair seems to get sent into the front line of battle. <laughs> I don't know why he's actually having a, a fight. The uh, the sequences on the planet worked a bit less well for me because they were just sort of, you know, the ground invasion. Yeah. Just sort yeah. of corridors and people shooting. But the space scenes worked pretty well. And indeed, much of it would be uh, reused in future Corman productions. Yes, yes. I, was, I think I've seen the other one that reuses the ships uh, much later because that'll be on the sub. The, the ships are at, and, uh, embedded into my mind. Um, uh, but I've seen them used in completely different contexts in other films, um, and that confused the hell out of me until I realised Roger Corman was very good at recycling. <laughs> so he didn't want to um, uh, spend any money he didn't have to, and quite right too. There's no, there's no harm with that. Um, I, I mean, I feel like uh, it may be a cheap Star Wars knockoff, but everyone with the possible exception of George Peppard, and I may be being unfair there too. Everyone is trying hard here. John Saxon is exactly what he needs to be as Sador. Um, everyone's really into it. And it, 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 there's a joy to it, I think, and a, a kind of, it's a, it's no star crash, you know, it has some self-awareness. <laughs> it's genuinely funny in some areas. Um, I, th- I think there's some interesting science fiction, um, concepts like the guys who, uh, I don't know quite how it works, but you know, they communicate thermally and they've got no ears, which comes in when there's a sonic cannon. Why didn't um, you tell us you could dissolve enemy soldiers in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> they were saving their batteries. Um, and I like the, you know, the gestalt entity, this kind of population of one personality and how that's played into, um, that's good. I I like it a lot. Mm. Um, I also think, in contrast to the Seven Samurai and the Magnificent Seven to some extent, the they all get a good send off here. Um, you know, in Seven Samurai, and, and it's a different beast, I suppose. But you know, they just get shot, and everyone they get proper funerals and things. But when they die, it's just like he's dead. Um, and similar in Magnificent Seven for the most part. Which is arguably fitting the realistic style they're going for. Oh yeah, I I think it's a pro, but here, you know, Robert Vaughan you know, he gets a real that's the best acting he does on his deathbed when he's like, oh, oh, what are we doing here on this shit? Oh, and then he dies. He does it better than that. I'll give give you that. Um, But, you know, the Valkyrie, there seems to be some weird editing there because I thought she flew into the the Stellar Converter, that's a great name for a weapon, isn't it? Um, but anyway, she gets the, you know, the live fast, fight well, have a beautiful ending. Um, at least it wasn't a happy ending. No. <laughs> <laughs> but they all get good. I, I, I do think that they, at, at least some of the in-space uh, deaths weren't as clear as they might be simply because it was, I mean, you know, here is a spaceship, here is another spaceship, yes. here is a spaceship, pew, pew, pew. here is an explosion. Wait, you forgot that cut to the space person in the cockpit Doing the same thing they were doing five seconds ago when it cut to them before, but we have to, we have to show them. Like a lot of the shots are here of Robert Vaughan looking up at the ceiling, concentrating. <laughs> and I don't know why we need to see that every five seconds. Robert, but... we're going to project how much money you've earned on, 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 the, on the spot right there. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, uh, well, most of the budget went on his and George Peppard's salary, I think. But it's a fun film. I'm not going to pretend, spoilers, that this one's a masterpiece, but it holds a special place in my heart. Well, there are a couple of things I'd, I'd like to say on this. I mean, what, one where I think it does fail is there isn't really a sense of progress. I mean, we, we've got this idea that the plan is to strip away the fighter cover from the enemy great big yes. scary ship and then go after it as an individual we we never really get any impression of how much fighter cover is left just well that, at i think some, they mention at, some point, at one point well, he's okay, got 25 now, but yeah. that's that's the only time they mention it and then, then yeah, at some point okay we now seem to be attacking the, the main weapon yes which, which i think i think could have worked better i'm just, just remembering you know, a thing worth pitching from star wars the original one was the whole uh, how close is the Death Star to getting into position where it can fire on the on the planet? That yeah, that's a really. It's little things like that actually make quite a difference. Yes. A, a sense of timed tension. Yes. Um, but uh, I, I was thinking of the death of Zed, uh, the, the 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 father figure. Yes. Uh, and I was thinking, yeah, this is clearly meant to be a terribly emotional scene, and frankly, it just isn't because he's a temp- he's a template. Um, yes. Yeah, I think that's fair. I could go into Roger's printing corner here, but I think we'll probably all be happier if I don't. Uh, <laughs> but look up the history of stereotypes sometime. Um, okay. But basically, what what the film does well, and I think this is is a virtue that may not be as highly regarded as it should be, is it does establish its stereotypes. You know, it, mm. it does not waste time saying this guy is the father figure who can't fight anymore. It, it's it's obvious from, you know, three syllables in. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, yeah the, I This laugh. guy is the cocky kid who's going to be, learn to be a hero. Um, I laugh, but I agree with you. It's a very useful shorthand because this establishing this is not an important part of the film. Let's not waste too much time on it. We could be blowing stuff up. <laughs> now, I... Uh, Seven Samurai actually introduces the characters really well. You know, they all get their cool introduction, or most of them do. Hmm. You know, we have the saving the cat moment with the hostage situation and the the master gets his moment of reluctance, which is, again is basically copied in Magnificent Seven. Um, uh, I, no, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to win. Oh, all right, I'll kill you. Um, and uh, Yeah, they, and we, they, do, we don't get most of those things here. Here, we're just like, this guy's the space cowboy. You know what to expect with him. Pretty soon into Sybil Danning's performance, you know what to expect, <laughs> you know what to expect. <laughs> uh, from her. Uh, John Boy, uh, sorry, um, uh, I've forgotten his actual name, which is a terrible disservice to uh, John Boy Walton. Um, but Richard you know, uh, thank you, Richard Thomas. Again, he's they're all pretty clear stereotypes, and even Gail. Uh, Robert Vaughan doesn't have to spend too long because we've already seen the same character um, in The Magnificent Seven um, or a very similar type. But I agree that shaves off some screen time and doesn't make you like them any less. You just know what to expect. Hmm. And, I mean, yeah, it, it's not lovely deep drama. No. But it gets it is the lovely job 80s, done. Lovely it... 80s science fiction and and, and and if you're a eight-year-old boy yeah oh that's that's why it's um, quite quite a lot of quite a lot of other people and then yeah it's it's not a great adventure but I mean, it, it's if you're good a 13 adventure. year old boy then civil downing probably had more, <laughs> more ability and not not forgetting them again this is the era when we, we can't just casually watch the entirety of film from the previous century 
Exactly. Well, that was my point, really. That the, the reason I know this film so well and have a weird, a weird disconnect between me remembering how it felt to watch it as a as a, a kid, a prepubescent child, and watching it now, uh, it's because we just. Oh God, I'm going to sound like my parents now, but it's just there wasn't <laughs> that much to watch, and if it was raining and there was nothing to mm. do. Um, you pulled out an old VHS and watched it again. But also as a kid, I think you've got more tolerance for, I've certainly noticed it with my children. They will just, they'll watch something. And then if they enjoyed it, they'll just watch it again. You know, it doesn't have the kind of, I don't know why as an adult you find that tiresome, but certainly you do. <laughs> um, but as a kid, you've got a lot more tolerance for repetition, I think. I don't know why that is. That's uh, beyond the scope of the film, but, uh, Interesting, nevertheless. Yeah. Um, and I, I've, I've seen the occasional Roger Corman thing, particularly some of the Poe uh, films, but I think this was the first one where it, where it really made sense to me of the his real talent, quite apart from penny-pinching, which is working <laughs> out what the audience wants and giving it to them. Which is not a sin in any way. And sometimes that's all we want in Ribbon of Mead. Yeah. Which is sometimes he works it out by... Uh, watching what everyone else has done and working. <laughs> but that's a skill too. I mean, a lot of people try that and fail. And I think this was a success. Well, uh, I we, mean, we, all we've, these films we've talked before about uh, films that imitate ones that are hugely successful, but they don't imitate the good bit. They just imitate the yes. easy bit. So <laughs> it's exactly. Whereas this, I think it gets a lot right. Um, mm. So I, but I'm I'm not entirely objective. But I'm glad you feel similarly, having not encountered it before, even though it's sprayed with eighties cheese um it's lovely so <laughs> masterpiece wise I, I for me seven samurai hands down i mean i i yes. think uh i within i've talked about before sometimes within a few minutes of a film starting i'm no longer i sort of disengage my critical faculties to some extent because i'm like all right i trust i trust this filmmaker and i'm just going to enjoy the film uh, and that doesn't happen with a lot of films, but it certainly happened with Seven Samurai. And I, despite all the hype and all, all the, everyone saying this is the greatest film ever or whatever, um, it, it genuinely is great. Uh, I, I went in with moderately high expectations and they were exceeded. Yeah, I think that's fair <laughs> enough. Magnificent Seven, um, ah, uh, I, I think it's borderline for me. Um, Ju just in for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't I'm, argue I'm not it. as literate in westerns as perhaps I should be. I've never, yes. never really been a big fan of them. And th this is clearly, you know, towards the end of the first wave western. Yes. You know, b before the spaghetti westerns happened. Um, but it, it, it's clearly using some stock elements, but it's using them very well. And the, the, the way it expands on the uh, bandits, I think, make, makes well, it work yes. very well. I think it's interesting. It was certainly interesting watching them right after each other to, to me to see what elements they could basically just plug in mm. to the Western and what changed. And I think the things that changed probably they were right to change. I do think they could have done with a, a full archetype in there, but, <laughs> um, but that's just me. I, you would have to, I don't know though, would it be better with Robin Williams mugging his way through? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, sorry, that's no disrespect to Robin Williams. I just, I, uh, he was a great man. I just found his shtick didn't work for me. Anyway, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a, a very good translation of the plot, which gets a lot of it right. Um, doesn't have to me quite the attention to detail that Kurosawa has, but I think mm, very few sure. people do. 
Um, but yeah, probably just in, but borderline to just in. And um, Battle Beyond the Stars, I think we both agree, is hands down the greatest film ever made. <laughs> Um, for me, I mean, it's not a masterpiece, but by gum, it's closer than I expected. <laughs> it's um, it's sometimes thought of as the good Roger Corman film, and it the the <laughs> pro- I suppose that some of the things that take away from masterpiece, you know, it's very derivative of both <laughs> the Seven Samurai and um, uh, Star Wars, and it's hard to say yeah. it's a very original film. I think if I, if I had randomly come to this at a cinema, I might well have been quite disappointed in it. Right, except that you know it was sci-fi action, and there wasn't a whole lot of sci-fi action out there. I think um, if you had a kid, as I was, who they were like, "You like Star Wars? Do you want to see something quite like Star Wars um, that will make you happy in a similar way?" Here you go. And I think you're right. That's what Roger Corman did very well. Yeah, I, and a I lot think of that's films the key thing. The, the film is not promising to do any more than that. Yeah, I, I um, but still, and everyone... if you don't expect to do any more than that, you can have a great time with it, as I did. <laughs> yes, I think that's it. We didn't go into it thinking this is considered one of the greatest films of all time, <laughs> um, and as such, uh, we agreed it isn't. But it's um, it's good. It's not a masterpiece. I mean, it's not. It was very derivative, um, and yeah, <laughs> this is coming but out I after Alien. Anyway. Let's not forget. <laughs> I wonder you're spoiling it, but um, well, Ridley Scott's done some bad films after Alien as well. Oh so yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> quite a lot of bad films. Anyway, let's not go into that. Um, but I, uh, I think, I mean, there's a reason this plot has been imitated. I mean, we've talked about one of the best known and one sort of almost random version imitated Seven Samurai. It's imitated because it's a very simple plot and it's actually quite a compelling plot. We gather and even in a broader scheme, there's a lot of films that aren't so much this exact plot, but they are first half of the film. Let's gather a team of experts to do this specific job. Second half of the film. Let's do this specific job. So but particularly even if they're not. Yeah. If, if you have it as a, as a recruiting sort of thing, you, you can show not, not just here is who these people are but here is who they are in their in their normal lives you know here yeah. is uh, bob cleaning out the casino and then then we pick him up as he strolls away with his pockets full of money that kind of thing yes yeah, but yeah. It, it, it's it's the quick it's the introduction of the character with with in effect an action scene for yeah, the, sort the, of the saving the cat scene, and then well, not not um, only saving the cat, but also showing okay, this is somebody who's pretty darn good at what they do. Yeah, this, they're and, all, and so when later in the film they find it hard, we know yeah, they they're already pretty good. This must be a really hard problem. Yeah, it's 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 pretty good structure for a story, and it I think it's always somewhat satisfying. Um, whenever I've seen it done, and you know, there's a lot of TV shows that followed this. Um, theme as a lot of role playing games follow this kind of theme too. Um, but it's, it's good. Um, hmm. well done, Akira Kurosawa. Um, I'm not the first to say that, so it's probably <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, it was my second experience of Kurosawa. Um, my first was Throne of Blood, which as I've said before, clearly, I, I don't know. If I was Macbeth and someone said to me, you will rule until the forest walks, any role playing game character I've ever worked with, ever worked with ever played with would just say right burn down the forest <laughs> i mean you would not think ho ho i'm safe in that case but anyway that's the, the uh, king has generously uh, admitted uh, right, right of forward gathering for all peasants throughout the land <laughs> <laughs> well 
Yes, there we are. Three good films, uh, one masterpiece, one great slash masterpiece, and one uh, good... I like it. I like it lots. And Very just good. Re- remember those words to live by. If God didn't want them shared, he would not have made them sheep. <laughs> 